Welcome. It's another Dirt Road Journey. Stories to learn from in life and business. I'm Rob Deptford. I'm excited for my guest today. She's a communications consultant, so it's a topic that's a little bit uh, near and dear to my own heart. And uh, she is in mainland China. We'll get her to explain where she is because it was confusing to me to start with. Uh, but it sounds like a very vibrant city where she's uh, currently doing business. She's a former marketer, or a current marketer, I guess, and comes from filmmaking as well. She's worked with Fortune 500 companies. She's done a TEDx talk now and uh, doing communication consulting now uh, as kind of her main gig. Nasheen Ishtiak Chen. Did I get that right? Yes. Yeah, you got that perfectly right. Thank you. Hi, hey, Rob. Welcome. I'm uh, I'm glad to have you on the program. Thank you. It's awesome being here. It's amazing talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so the city where you are, mm -hmm. Shen Shenzhen, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. You pronounced it. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> the right way. Pretty okay. much. Absolutely. And, and, and this is you were telling me before we started recording. This is mainland China, but you can pretty much see Hong Kong out your window. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we're in the south. We're right next to Hong Kong. Like you can walk over to Hong Kong. You could have walked over to Hong Kong in better days uh, pre-COVID. Now it's much harder uh, with the quarantine and everything. And we are so we're the third largest city after Beijing and Shanghai in China. We're probably one of the fastest growing startup ecosystems in Asia, if not the world. And yeah, it's it's a very dynamic, vibrant city. Um, a lot of the huge Chinese tech companies are headquartered here, and a lot of the fast-growing startups are headquartered here as well. Because it it's just a very um, it's a very rich and very easy ecosystem to get into to to start off as a company. So, like half the people that you're going to meet here are startups, startup founders. Yeah, which is yeah. incredible. And that's one of your target clients, right? Is startups. Right. So they they were, especially when I first moved here, for sure. Because when I moved here, I started off as a solopreneur in media. So media creation and media strategy. Mm -hmm. And our specialization quickly became creating videos for the West. So helping Chinese clients that were creating products for overseas clients for the US and for um, European markets to really kind of help them create their brand story in a more international way, to really help them globalize their brands, basically, and to help them create videos, video content for their socials, for their websites, and to help them do them all, not just in English, but also in a nuanced, internationalized way in terms of the, the cultural references. So. Right. That's what we were doing for a long time. And now I'm transitioning more into communications consulting, which is working with companies, not just startups, but also other uh, more established companies, helping their leadership and, and helping their management basically refine their communication skills, whether it's interdepartmental, interpersonal communication skills at work or helping CEOs, CMOs, or C-level execs create a public persona for the media, for themselves, for the company, for example, helping them with their next TED Talk, helping them with their next media interview on TechCrunch or on the BBC, helping them come up with their own public persona. So not just, not just a personal brand, which I feel like is more of an online term, but 
like more of an offline plus online overall public presence. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, we're doing some of that around here in Canada too. And I, I can only imagine that the need is the same there as it is here for a lot of the leaders out there in, in corporate land, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially new leaders, for sure, especially people that have um, just, yeah, just kind of either been promoted or people that are new entrepreneurs that have, you know, are now at the head of very fast growing companies. And they just haven't had a lot of media exposure. I've literally, yeah. you know, I've, I've worked with people that are very senior that have never been in front of a camera. And yeah. now it's more important than ever, as we know, to to be the face of the company. So yeah. just helping, helping those people. Yeah. So let's talk about how you got to where you are. Uh, we were talking earlier and you said you did some time in radio. I did some time in radio and that was a lot mm-hmm. of fun. And you've yeah. done some filmmaking. How do you go from that and mm-hmm. get to where you are now? Yeah, it's a great question. One that I have been asking myself as well. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I would call myself a meanderer. And recently I was talking to a lot of other people in communications and, you know, they said, you know, call yourself an explorer. That sounds better. You know, meanders like without purpose and an explorer like takes on the world. And I was like, sure, I'll do that. Um, But I just told you I'm both. So, you know, that defeats the purpose. But I have been a meanderer slash explorer most of my life. I started off at Procter & Gamble. That's where my Fortune 500 experience comes from. And I was doing PR, marketing, communications there for five years. And that was really my first exposure to the corporate world, to the business world, and really kind of, uh, you know, like to our expression that you used earlier, I cut my teeth in communications there, which was great for establishing some systems, but also left some left some knowledge gaps in terms of you know being able to adapt to uh faster growing less organized less systematized companies because Procter and Gamble had a lot of systems already in place but that's where my journey started and after 5 years I wanted to take a break so I quit I traveled around for a bit went to Nepal took a road trip across Pakistan had no plans just wanted to do your cliched quintessential self-discovery and really kind of understand who I was and what I wanted to do a little bit of clarity came then but not all so I just kind of went in different directions I did improv I did theater ended up doing comedy for a late night tv show ended up making small videos that were really crappy. Um, But that's how I kind of got into filmmaking. And then I got the Fulbright scholarship to go to New York. And I was in New York for grad school, um, went to the new school for media studies. That was amazing. And that's where I, I guess, really learned how to be a filmmaker at you know, close to my 30s. So I was not one of those people that always had like a filmmaking dream. And I got that education and we came to China. Uh, My husband got a job here. So we decided to move from New York straight to China. It was surreal at the time because I had my New York friends saying like, are you really moving to China? That's where you're going next? (laughs) So it was was surreal. And it was surreal being here too, uh, for sure. There There was culture shock. Weirdly enough, there was no culture shock when I actually moved to the U.S. because we kind of grew up with like American and British cultures most of our lives. 
Right. Sure. So, yeah. And when I went to the U.S., it was like, yeah, okay, this is America. All right. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> it was, There's a McDonald's well, and a Starbucks down the street. Right. You know? A Wendy's. <laughs> like, it's all it's all good. I get it. I, you know, I, yeah. I could. I, all I had to do right in the beginning was change the way I pronounced certain words. So it, was, it had to be dance and not dance. It had to be bathroom and not bathroom, which uh. is how, how I grew up. We grew up with like the British English, and to this day, my husband makes fun of me because now it's stuck. Like I can't, I can't go back to Kant, and he says Kant, and and whenever I say can't, he like he makes so much fun of me. He's like, "What is wrong with you? Are you saying you can or you can't?" And you you can yes, and <laughs> and especially in New York, right? New Yorkers have this very distinctive accent. Yes, y y yes and no. Yeah, I mean. Uh, and I say this also in my so Canadian many... accent as we're speaking. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, I, I suppose a lot of New Yorkers do, but now there's just, I mean, and for a while, there's just so many people that come to New York from all over, and then they bring their own accents as well, which is beautiful. That was definitely something I loved about being there. And so, yeah, we've, so we came to China and um, like I was telling you earlier, I started off doing um, just like solo work in film and then did that for for a while for five years and we were just we were growing to the point where i started feeling burnt out post covid well pretty very very much during covid it was it was a hard time for everyone for all of us where we all felt that you know it was like company budgets were you know dwindling and you still had to get the same resources and you know build the same product and that so on the one hand, you weren't getting enough support. And on the other hand, you were actually getting um, these resources that were get, getting more and more scarce because a lot of people were leaving China or had left China. For us, actually, because we would actually create videos for the West, we would actually need to use Western models. We would need to have a lot of other foreign um, resources working on our products, working on our project. It would just make sense. You would actually try to bring about like a mix of Chinese and, and foreign elements. But a lot of the a lot of the creative direction was always set by by us because it would by by the foreigner team because it would make sense because we're creating a product not for the Chinese market. Yeah. But it just um it kept getting more and more difficult to a stage where it didn't make sense to do that anymore. And I also felt that filmmaking was great, but I was drawn to doing a more, um, I don't want to say meaningful because I know creating a video can be meaningful and it was, but doing something that perhaps could have a more long lasting impact, doing something that would also utilize more of my skills. I had been delivering workshops and trainings kind of sprinkled throughout my life for the past decade or so. And I also had a lot of marketing and communications experience that I was using in bits and pieces in the filmmaking work, but not to the extent that I really wanted to. A lot of our, because, you know, we talked about a lot of our clients being startups, a lot of them didn't really have a defined marketing strategy. Some of them didn't even have slogans. And, you know, we would actually help them craft their, some of their brand messaging, even though that wasn't really what they had hired us for, but we had the skill set. So I realized it would just, it would make sense to actually offer this versus offering the, you know, the executional product, which to be honest, a lot of just vi a video team could produce the, the video, but what we were doing was more strategy and more consulting and more messaging. 
So why not just do that? Because it was more fulfilling anyway. Sure. So that's how I kind of ended up here, where I hope to do more of work. So when I want to work with companies, I want to work on their brand story. But then I also want to work with leaders and with management, with C-suite execs, helping them craft their own public personas, which is yeah. also something that I've been doing in terms of you know our media and PR work. Yeah, certainly. Well, hey, coming out of the media industry or the media sector, um, you certainly bring some transferable skills to a consulting role, right? And the beauty about mm -hmm. consulting is you do get to choose which areas of expertise you truly want to focus on and help teach others. Uh, which mm -hmm. is terrific. I think that can be tremendously fulfilling. Did you ever envision yourself in entrepreneurship when you were younger? No, no. I came from a, a very traditional family in the sense that traditional in the professional sense of the word, thankfully not in other, in the cultural sense of the word. My mother was a fierce feminist and, and I love her for that. But in terms of the professional world, yeah, my, 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 my mom was a teacher, my dad was working in the government, and we, I don't think we've had a lot of entrepreneurship in our family. We've actually, I'm actually from a family of mostly teachers, a lot of teachers. So people loved institutions, that's where they found safety. They were also coming from a generation that was traumatized by the war uh, between India and Pakistan. They were all, my my parents' generation were all children at that time. So they, they were coming from a place of like scarcity and, you know, the mindset of like survival. So for them, like financial security was the biggest thing. So they wouldn't even encourage us to be entrepreneurs. It was always like, find the best possible job you can, get as financially secure as possible, get your independence. I was raised by a single mom. My, my, mom, my dad unfortunately died when I was 10. So my mom raised me and you know, for her, the most important thing was like, don't ever depend on, on, on someone else for your financial security. Like make absolutely sure you're financially independent. And that can, for her, it could only come from a full-time job. Yeah. 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 Interesting. So was there, was there any entrepreneurial inspiration for you along the way? Now, it didn't come from your family, I guess. Right. But was there something else? Um, my husband was a huge supporter. So he's actually been um, a freelancer and an independent consultant for a long time. He quit like the, the, the corporate world or like the full-time nine-to-five world maybe 15 years ago. And he's been, you know, he's been just doing consultancy and doing freelance work. And for him, it's not scary anymore. And weirdly enough, he does come from a family of entrepreneurs. So... Mm even though it's not like neither one of us was like, you know, rich or well off by any stamp, by, by any means at all. But we were, um, but because he was kind of conditioned in that way of like forging your own path and doing your own thing and finding your own way, he encouraged me to do that. So when we came to China, actually, was the first time that I actually started uh, being an entrepreneur. I actually tried my hand at it and it was very scary, yeah. but Fortunately or unfortunately, I was not very employable in China. I didn't speak the language. I it would have been very hard for me to to integrate myself even culturally uh, into a Chinese company. I wouldn't. I just wouldn't have made a good fit. I, I feel like I'm too much of a, I don't know, a, a rebel perhaps or a nonconformist in that way. So 
it would just it wouldn't have made sense and i wouldn't have been offered employment anyway so it just it was kind of like entrepreneurship by default like you just need to figure out what you can do here um why don't you try figuring out like how you can be an entrepreneur in media so it was it was very interesting not just being an entrepreneur but being an entrepreneur for the first time in a foreign country where i didn't speak the language <laughs> and so, all the challenges that come along with that yeah <laughs> it was fascinating it was it was a lot of growth um definitely very out of my comfort zone at the time so where do you see your industry going you know especially in your geographic area where you're trying to kind of put this thing together and and be successful where do you where do you envision the industry as a whole and and how you fit in so first actually i wanted to say that i i do plan on working with other clients and not just Asian clients. We okay. will hopefully, we will hopefully also be making our transition out of China next year. We've been here seven years, you know, I think we've had a great journey, but it is time to move on. So we are looking at going to France next year. So oh, nice. I, I yeah, yeah, my husband is, is French. Um, and now I finally speak French. So it would be, it would be a good time, hopefully. Yeah. We're, so that so but that said i have been working definitely with asian clients so far and uh it's a very different industry in asia versus the rest of the world right now in asia with not just the language barrier but also the culture not being super extroverted it's a much more like communications 101 type of industry here where we work with um, leaders to really refine their basic communication skills in English, refine their media interviewing skills, refine their public speaking skills. And these are people who might not have spoken in public before and would definitely not have spoken in public in English before. Even though they do, they do speak in English, but it's never really the same. Um, I don't know if you have, do you have a second language? Uh, I, I have a, a little bit yeah. of French because that's Canada, right? But, uh, right? but I'm not fluent by any stretch. Okay. So I don't know if you've ever tried to, to deliver a speech in, in French or tried to have a conversation. <laughs> it, would be, it would be very difficult, even if, you, even if you spoke it fluently. But if it was your second language, it's just it's very difficult to be the same person in a second language. And that's really what I work with leaders to deliver their, you know, their confidence and their entire personality packaged for creating a public presence in a second language, because all those factors combined make it a huge challenge for anyone. When I was, and I, I know it firsthand because when I was learning French last year, I understood that for for a while, it was just so hard to be myself, you know, in, in, in English, uh, which is basically, I'm, I, I grew up bilingual. So in English, it's, it's very easy for me to, to convey my personality to really be extroverted, be, be social, be open, be happy, be energized. But when you have a second language, and you're, you're, a lot of your brain is just processing that, right? It's like mm -hmm. a lot of your brain power is just like rerouted to make sure you're fluent, make sure you don't make a grammatical mistake. Oh, what was the word for that? Damn it. Okay, I'll come up with another word. So it's all that stuff happening. And then there's another part of your brain that's like, oh, must insert personality, must insert personality. Yes. But 
it it it's 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 like it it becomes a, a jumbled up mess. So and that's definitely what you don't want to show on camera. That's not what you want to show in public when you're delivering a speech. You want to be poised and you want to hold the audience's attention. You want to be deliberate. You want to be yourself. You want to be confident. So gaining that level of confidence in public is a challenge for anyone, even in their native language. So in that way, you could say like anyone who's who's creating a public presence in English as a second language definitely has like, you know, a double challenge to to overcome. So that's where we are in the industry over here. In, in other parts of the world, especially in, in, in the US, um, where they don't have that language barrier, it's just so much more advanced because the industry can be advanced. And, you know, there's a lot more nuance to what communications consultants and communication coaches are bringing to the industry, which is super exciting. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. What, so we know some of the challenges. What have been some of your favorite things in your work? Oh, the favorite thing is always, always seeing the transformations. It's, um, and it's intense because in the first few stages, you know, the, the growth is exponential. The learning curve is exponential and you can see it because we're all about visibility. So it's really what you first do the first steps you know the first media training the first public speaking training with someone after the first two or three sessions when you're practicing with them and they're doing something that they've just learned for the first time you can really see them trying to synthesize everything integrate everything that they've learned and put it into practice and it's something else we were talking about you know in terms of radios it's immediately gratifying because you're the moment you practice it you've done it You've, you've, you've spoken in public, you've taken these skills and you've, you know, for example, we do a number of like mock interviews. Um, I help people record their, their talks and then we look over them and we analyze them. The moment you've delivered your first talk, even if it's just in front of me, you've done it. You've literally spoken in public. You've spoken to, you know, an external audience. Yeah. So it's, just Ooh, seeing win, the transformation right? yeah yeah and <laughs> like one of the one of the people one of the execs we worked with she'd like you know never given um a media interview before and it was it was incredible like we did a few sessions with her worked with her for about two months and then she did her first podcast and doing a podcast is is not easy you know you have to be on you have to be quick to respond to questions you can't really ask for the person to repeat them to repeat themselves too many times and you can't really go by a script. And she was able to do it. She did a fantastic podcast interview and we were just so proud of her. So. That, that is terrific, yeah. Well, we sometimes we make podcasting look easy, right? <laughs> and if, <laughs> yeah. if we can, then we must be doing our job right or at least doing it reasonably well. Anyway, that's the objective. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it's not looking easy or not sounding easy, then uh, boy, we, we've got work to do. But, uh, but we've got work to do in just about everything all life long, don't we? What's and, and speaking yeah. of lessons, here's my segue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of life lessons or business lessons, uh, mm -hmm. just in terms of the entrepreneurial journey, the, the meandering or exploring, uh, what has been the biggest business lesson for you so far? Oh, gosh. Um, cultural adaptation. I would say has probably been the biggest one. I was coming into 
the Chinese culture with knowledge of American culture and Pakistani culture primarily. And I realized that even though China is officially a part of Asia and I'm Asian by being from Pakistan, it's like still two different worlds. And being able to culturally adapt, being able to speak to clients that don't come from the same culture, don't necessarily have the same shared references or cultural language as you, being able to talk to project resources, employees, and making things work in a completely different culture, you know, doing conflict resolution in a completely different culture was was the biggest challenge and the biggest lesson where I had to really adapt very fast. And I had to find a balance for myself because it's, for me at least, I feel like it's very easy being on two ends of the spectrum. One, which is like, I'm just going to be myself and people should just learn to deal with it. Um, or in the second, the other end of the spectrum is like, I'm just going to completely change everything about me so that I can fit in. And I'm going to agree with all of these cultural values that I'm seeing because I just want to be a part of it. And admittedly, the second way can work. I have seen a lot of people integrate really well. But for me personally, especially because I was creating content, I was I was giving a product or service that was ultimately going to end up you know, in the West for a Western audience, it made sense to find a balance between the two. Definitely be adaptable in terms of the cultural setting. So, for example, respecting the hierarchy, which is not something I did before because I come from a, you know, I come from a, a, a more of like an American professional working environment because I was at PNG, which was very American, and it, and we brought the American values in when we were even when we were working in Pakistan. But being cognizant of the fact that it works differently here, and for example, the boss gets the final say. That's just how it is. And everyone just follows that. And there's no need and no purpose in fighting that. So those are some of the cultural values that I had to adapt to. But at the same time, sometimes being more in the, um, you know, in, in a place of like coming from, I actually know more about this cultural nuance that's that's that will be interpreted a certain way in the West. Let me tell you about this because I believe maybe your perception might not be entirely correct. So sticking to some parts of, of what I know and the values that I bring, work-life balance was one of them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, sometimes it's hard working with startups, especially Asian startups. I mean, I think startups in general just work a lot and you have to, I, I think, in that journey. But especially Asian startups just have sometimes a very challenging work environment. And we as an agency had two choices. One, either to completely conform to that and be like, yeah, we're going to be available weekends. We're going to be available at 10 p.m. Or take a step back and set expectations and manage expectations and say that, you know, I we are committed. We will deliver on these timelines. We will promise you that we will deliver and we will make it happen. But we're not going to ask our team to stay over time because that's bad for morale. And that's the world that we come from. And that's the culture we want to foster in our own little startup. A lot of times it worked, sometimes it didn't. You also had to be flexible about that. So that that has been the biggest lesson. Flexibility, adaptation, <laughs> open-mindedness. 
right? And just yeah. being aware of some of these little nuances or, or big cultural differences in some cases. I think a lot mm-hmm. of people can learn from that story uh, for sure. I want to shift gears a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been, uh, if you've been listening to some of the other episodes of this program, what I do with people as we wrap things up, as we get into talking about where you live and what some of the fun stuff is around there. So mm-hmm. you are in Shenzhen. Yeah. And if uh, if I were coming to play tourist there, what would I have to go and see? Mm, such a great question. First of all, I do want to tell you that if you were a tourist, you're probably better off going to Beijing or Shanghai because those are more touristy cities. Okay. <laughs> there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of Chinese culture there. There's a lot of history there. Shenzhen doesn't have as much history. Shenzhen is more for the what would you call them? Like the, the 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 industry visitor, you know, the person who's more interested in the startup ecosystem. But that said, you can absolutely have a great time here. Um, there are a number of very cool places. So while I said it doesn't have like that age-old history because it's a very young city, I, I believe maybe just about 40 years old. Um, so very, very young. But there are a number of really interesting little Art, artistic communities that have sprung up in different parts of the city. There is what we call um, an oil painting village, where if you go there, you'll literally see maybe dozens or hundreds of oil painters just kind of sitting at their easels and just kind of um, a lot of times making like replicas, um, a lot of times making original art, but it's literally just a little of, of a village of oil painters, which is fascinating. Um, there's for sure the beach, and they have many. We have many different kinds of many different types of many different kinds of beaches. It's um, always fun. I live next to the water. It's not the beach, but it's um, a bay, so it's very very pretty. There is um, a very very long uh, promenade that. Uh, you can just walk. You can walk on it for hours next to the water. So a lot of people go there to to bike, um, just like be next to the water. I go there for walks every week with my friend. It's very, it's very beautiful, and that's that's actually where you can see Hong Kong just across the water. And in general, in the city, I would say that now we're starting to do more and more cultural events. Mm-hmm. There, there were always a number of events in Chinese. But of course, if you're a visitor, you might want to see a bit of that, but also a bit of um, you know English events. So there are a bunch of different events and communities springing up. I'm actually a part of a very vibrant community called Shenzhen Stories, which is started by a friend of mine. And he gets together people um, every once in a while, sometimes every fortnight, just to tell stories, just to come together and tell stories, true stories from their life about a specific theme. And it's a, it's a it's a really cool event and sometimes the i mean this is a, a a city of i believe it was maybe 13 million people but sometimes the community feels very close knit i remember this one time i actually i told uh, one of a story at one of these events and the next week i was walking down the street and someone pointed at me and said oh i heard you at shenzhen stories and i was like that is that is weird. That is just, it's, it's small weird. Small town feel in a city of 13 Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> so that definitely happens. I, I guess that's inevitable. It was actually very, it was very much like this in Karachi, which is a city I grew up in in Pakistan. It was very much like this there too, because once you're that huge, you know, kind of by default, you're literally going small. You need to be, you need to create your own little bubble, whether that's for good or bad. I mean, it's it's got its pros and cons, but it was very similar there. It was like such a small world, even though we were also, I, I believe Karachi also kind of, I, I forgot how how big Karachi is, but I think it also, um, it, it can it can like compete with, with Shenzhen. Ah, okay. It's 15 million almost. Wow. So a little bit yeah. bigger. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow, that, incredible. Thank you. Thank you uh, for painting that picture because, uh, you know, I don't get to travel the world quite as much as I would like to. So it's nice to talk to people where they're at and, and get a sense of what's going on around mm -hmm. them. Um, Nosheen, where can we find you? For now, LinkedIn is the best place. I am, because I, I think we talked a little bit about this, I'm transitioning to um, my own uh, independent communications consulting. So maybe by the time you have this up, my website would be online. I don't know when you're going to have this up, but my website would be nsheen.com. So the first letter of my name, N, and then Sheen, like Martin and Charlie.com. Um, but otherwise, LinkedIn would be would be the best place, Nasheen Ishtayak Chen. And I'm very active there. I share a lot of stories about communications, about miscommunications, about how to be a better communicator. And I share every day. I've been on this 30-day this LinkedIn challenge that um, a bunch of uh, uh, people, actually this one, one content creator um, came up with and we, we joined in. And so we've been on a 30-day LinkedIn posting streak without, without a break. So it's been, it's been very cool. You're, you're doing the marathon, the marathon of LinkedIn <laughs> posting. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. So, okay. So N, N Sheen at, or nsheen.com it is. Yeah. 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 Okay. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes because these things are evergreen, okay. right? Once they go up. So you just never know. We'll put that in the show notes and otherwise LinkedIn is a good place to find mm -hmm. you. I can vouch for your posts. You put up some good stuff. So. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. And uh, yeah, it was really good to have this conversation. I like these kinds of interviews where I have people on who know how to fill the airtime, right? From back from our radio days, you get those people that have the one word answers and you have to yes. have a list of 20 questions to try to fill the time <laughs> or a hundred questions. Um, yeah. I appreciate people who can have good, good conversation. <laughs> this is, uh, I've been lucky. I've had mostly good conversations and this is certainly another one of them. Thank Communications you. consultant Nasheen Ishchak Chen in Shenzhen, China, soon to be France, though, at some point, uh, not too yes. long in the future. I uh, really appreciate you coming on the program. Thank you so much, Rob. It's been it's been awesome talking to you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And yeah, it's been it's been fantastic. Thank you. It's Dirt Road Journeys. Hey, if you like the program, I've had some conversations as we just talked about with a lot of other keen entrepreneurs around the world. You can check it out at dirtroadjourneys.com. Hope to see you in the next program. I'm Rob Deptford. <laughs>